Habits and Health, episode 49. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Dr. Sarah Myhill. She's a naturopathic physician, a former GP. She's, um, she's written numerous books around chronic fatigue syndrome, ecological medicine, uh, a book called The Infection Game, the Paleo Cookbook or the Paleo Ketogenic Cookbook, um, The Diagnosis and Treatment of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Myelogic Encephalitis. I can't even say that. Um, and many others. We have a very interesting conversation. Um, and, well, I don't need to say any more. Just listen to Dr. Sarah Myhill. Habits and Health. My guest today, Sarah Myhill. How are you, Sarah? Very well, thank you, Tony. I'm looking forward to this morning. And you're, well, you're not so far away from me. You're in Mid Wales, you were telling me. Indeed, yeah, you're just down the road. If, if, if I'd known that before, I'd have crossed it down and we could have done this live. <laughs> <laughs> but your, your accent doesn't sound very Welsh. Oh, I'm not Welsh. I mean, my family are North Londoners. Uh, we're brought up in Wellin, in Hertfordshire, and I only moved here, you know, um, a few decades ago. And actually, the local people here are, are largely, well, they're all English speaking, and they have a Radnorshire accent rather than a Welsh accent. For the people listening who maybe aren't familiar with your name would you be give us a, a little background about what it is that you've done and and what it is that you do now okay well you know I qualified in 1981 having been conventionally trained you know at um, Middlesex Hospital Medical School I then went straight into general practice and I worked as an NHS GP for for about 20 years and during that time um, I I learned that modern medicine is not about identifying the root cause of symptoms. Modern medicine has drifted down the big pharma route, which is find a symptom and supply symptom-suppressing medication, which in the short term gives a short-term relief, but in the long term is disastrous because we have symptoms for very good reasons. Symptoms are the signposts. Symptoms tell us um, uh, there's something wrong and you've got to do something about it. And if the symptom gets very nasty um, when you don't do anything about it, then you should work even harder. Mm. And trying to tackle medicine from that um, intellectual viewpoint within the NHS became increasingly difficult. And eventually, during the um, late 1990s, I got my wrist slapped because my prescribing budget was so low. And because my prescribing budget was so low, that made me a bad doctor. Wow. Now, obviously, I was treating people through diet and lifestyle changes. And, uh, and then actually what really, there were, there were several issues, but the last straw was that I was told I would have to have hepatitis B vaccination if I were to be allowed to continue in NHS practice. And I'd seen so many people, patients who'd had serious illnesses and fatigue syndromes triggered by vaccination I thought that's it I've got to do my own thing so in 2000 Mm -hmm. um, I set up an independent uh, medical practice in fact there's a bit of overlap with my NHS work but by then I had enough work to make it viable Mm. now it is my view that all information should be freely available Um, and at that point I set up a website 
Mm-hmm. And everything that I knew or I'd learned about medicine, I put up there. And that's where my problems really started. Because you would think that somebody who, who, who was open and open to questioning and wanted to make that information freely available to all, you know, would be, would be applauded by the powers that be. And mm. I actually found that the reverse was true. And in 2001 um, came my first General Medical Council uh, investigation. Now, there have never been any complaints from patients. Um, all my patients are very happy with what I do. Every single complaint has come from other doctors, health authorities, or sometimes the GMC itself. And um, in consequence of, of, of all that, I am now the most investigated doctor in the history of the General Medical Council. Wow. Not because I've done any harm but simply because the establishment and the powers that be do not like my approach to medicine. They do not like the fact that I'm looking for disease causation rather than symptom suppression with drugs. So anybody listening into this has got to be thinking on, as obviously you are, Tony, has got to be thinking on those guidelines. We have symptoms. Why do we have those symptoms? What are the mechanisms of those symptoms? And what tools can we use to reverse that pathology. And that's what medicine should be all about. And in fact, if you think about it, that formula applies to any situation, whether it's agriculture, whether it's engineering, um, whether it's uh, health service, it doesn't matter. We ask you know, what the problem is, hmm. we identify the mechanism by which that problem has, been, has arrived at, and then that gives us an obvious treatment. Hmm. And I have no difficulty with that logical progression, as I hope you and your listeners will uh, have no difficulty as well. (laughs) Well, and uh, I mean, many of the experts and doctors who have been guests before you have some from integrative medicine and from functional medicine and and many similar types of approaches. So, yeah, very much. And and you, um, I know a couple of people that I've spoken to, you've also got some specialities. I know that you're renowned in, I think it was chronic fatigue syndrome and some other sort of conditions similar to to that area. Indeed. And chronic fatigue is the worst treated condition um, in the Western world. Uh, In the 1980s, I remember reading that the acronym TATT, tired all the time, constituted 40% of GP um, uh, consultations then. Of course, it's not 40% now because people have worked out that the doctors are no good at that. You know, they they just um, um, fudge the issue. Instead of asking the question, why is this person fatigued? They maybe do some basic tests to make sure there's no major pathology there. um, And then they dismiss the patient as being a hypochondriac. Mm. And I got started to get interested in chronic fatigue syndromes um, and ME in the mid 1980s and throughout the 1990s because you know I saw you know very fit, healthy people, you know sometimes Olympic athletes, sometimes um, English, you know British athletes performing to top level who developed this condition, and that told me it certainly was not hypochondriasis. Hmm. When I moved to Wales in the 1990s, I started seeing many farmers with sheep dip flu, which essentially is a severe chronic fatigue syndrome induced by um, exposure to toxic chemicals. Hmm. And I was really then asked the question, you know, why, you know, what's going on here? Why are these people pathologically fatigued? Hmm. Um, And then I started seeing Gulf War veterans, um, again, with a clinical picture of chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, why, you know, what happened in the Gulf uh, that caused those patients, those 
fit, healthy young men to become you know, pathologically ill. I saw over 200 women with silicon breast implants, again, who presented with a similar clinical picture of, of chronic fatigue syndrome and inflammation. Hmm. And, of course, you can get so many clues from the histories as what's go- as is what is going on here. But you know, let's leap forward to the here and now, to the present day. You know, what, what have I arrived at now? Mm. And essentially, the clinical picture of chronic fatigue syndrome is characterized by pathological fatigue, which causes physical fatigue and mental fatigue. In fact, these patients, essentially, they have an early dementia. And um, uh, patients with ME, they have pathological fatigue with poor energy delivery mechanisms and inflammation. Hmm. So their bodies are inflamed for reasons of allergy, autoimmunity, or maybe chronic infection. Hmm. So that's how I break it down. And the key point to remember about chronic fatigue syndrome and ME is they are not diagnoses. They are clinical pictures. Hmm. They're, they're groups of symptoms, and we have to ask the question why. We then have to break it down. So what makes fatigue pathological what's the difference between normal fatigue because guess what you and i you know we're going to be tired at the end of the day and we're going to have a good night's sleep and the next tomorrow we should wake up feeling fine Mm. so the difference between pathological fatigue and normal fatigue is the delay aspect Mm. people who are pathologically fatigued if they overdo things they pay for it the next day now, that's a universal um, um, symptom. You know, Steve Redgrave, after he'd won his fourth gold medal and had pushed himself to his limits, he would have had delayed fatigue. That, for him, was pathological. Hmm. But when energy delivery mechanisms are so awful that, you know, you can't survive, you can't do your everyday stuff just staying up without getting pathological fatigue, then you know you're in trouble. Hmm. Now, the starting point to treat ME and um, chronic fatigue syndrome is to look at energy delivery mechanisms. Hmm. And the analogy which I use is the car analogy. So if you're a car to go, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank, mm-hmm. and that's all about diet and gut function. Yep. You've got to have the mitochondrial engine, and this is my special area of interest, and together with John McLaren uh, Howard, we've published three papers now on mitochondrial function in patients with fatigue syndromes. Mm-hmm. Then you have to have the thyroid accelerator pedal, and that determines how fast your mitochondria go, and the adrenal gearbox. And the adrenal glands, the adrenal gearbox allows us to gear up in response to stress. So, um, you know, in, in response to doing a podcast like this, then, you know, I have to have a few stress hormones functioning uh, in order to allow me to perform so that I can inform and hopefully entertain at the same time. <laughs> so that's the analogy that I use for my patients. And I like that analogy because because I get it and my patients get it. Mm. And it always starts with diet. Mm. Now, diet is probably the most difficult thing that I ask people to do, but it's also the most important. And if you don't get diet right, nothing else works. And the problem with Western diets is that they are high in sugars and they are high in carbohydrates. Mm. Now, if you've got a perfect digestion, um, and young people do have much better digestions than than us old fogies, if you have perfect digestion, that will go a long way to dealing with sugars and carbohydrates. But it's so overwhelming nowadays. There's so much sugar and junk food and fast carbs and fruits and fruit juices pouring into our diets that it changes our gut function. Now, just to talk about normal gut function, the human gut is 
it's, it's almost unique in the mammal world because the upper gut should be a sterile, acidic, digesting gut, just like my little dog who's sitting next to me, just like her gut, for the businesses of absorbing, uh, uh, digesting and absorbing meat and fat. Mm-hmm. And then the lower gut, the large bowel, um, should be a vegetarian gut, just like my horse, you know, for the purposes of fermenting vegetable fiber. Mm. Now, that gut layout allows us to eat a, a very wide variety of foods. Mm. And that's part of what has made humans so successful in the, in the natural world. Because mm. we can, um, we can, you know, I can consume vegetables, um, uh, which my dog certainly couldn't cope with. And I can consume meat, which my horse certainly wouldn't deal with either. Mm. Now, I so say the upper gut should be a sterile, acidic, digesting gut. Now, if you overwhelm that with sugars and carbohydrates, mm. then the bacteria and the yeast move in and they ferment. And the upper gut becomes an upper fermenting gut. Mm. And I now know without a shadow of doubt that that drives much pathology. It causes mm. a huge number of problems. The first thing is if your upper gut is a fermenting gut, then it will be full of bacteria and it will be full of yeast that the body's not used to. And they produce toxins. They produce bacterial endotoxins. Um, they produce fungal mycotoxins and all of those poison the body. Mm-hmm. If you start to consume vitamins and minerals, and of course there are lots of natural um, um, vitamins and minerals in foods, then those microbes are in the front seat. They get first pick. So they take all the B vitamins and the essential fatty acids and um, the minerals for their own metabolism, i.e. you malabsorb those supplements. And I see so many people who have spent a fortune on supplements, but they've got an upper fermenting gut. They're just feeding the bugs. You know, right. Potentially they're making the situation worse. Hmm. And then those micros, when they ferment, they produce more toxins. So if you've got a yeast in the upper gut and you eat some fruit, it will ferment that to alcohol. It's called the auto-brewery syndrome. You know, it's not rocket science. And it's not just ethyl alcohol we get, we can produce methyl alcohol, propyl alcohol, butyl alcohol, we can produce delactate, hydrogen sulfide, ammoniacal compounds, a whole range of toxins, all of which poison the body. Mm. And you know, the, the, the blood, the venous drainage of the gut goes straight to the liver and the liver has to deal with that toxic load. And in dealing with that toxic load, it uses a massive amount of energy. Mm. One of the statistics I love to quote is at rest, the brain consumes 20% of our energy and the heart 7% of our energy at rest. Mm. The liver consumes 27%, i.e. the same amount of energy as the heart and the brain combined just to deal with that toxic load. So as soon as you clean up the upper fermenting gut with a PK diet, and we'll talk about that, as soon as you clean that up, you make more energy available to the rest of the body. Hmm. So, um, um, and, and there's a third major issue here. At medical school, we are taught, yes, the gut is full of bacteria, or rather the lower fermenting gut is full of bacteria, and there they stay and don't cause any problems. Not true. We now know that gut is, is a bit leaky, and some of those microbes do get from the gut into the bloodstream. Now, a very good example of that is if you brush your teeth. If I took a blood test from somebody two minutes after they brushed their teeth, I would find dental bacteria in the bloodstream. And that, of course, is why people with heart lesions go to the dentist, are given antibiotics routinely to stop them getting infections of the heart valve. But these microbes from the upper fermenting gut also get into the bloodstream. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, these microbes are not familiar 
you know, they shouldn't be there. Mm. And the immune system sees these unfamiliar, you know, foreign microbes uh, mm. floating around in the bloodstream and getting stuck in our joints and get stuck in our skin and getting stuck in, a, um, in, a, um, in our connective tissue. And where those microbes get stuck, we get inflammation. Mm. And I'm now quite sure that many pathologies um, derive from allergy to microbes from the upper fermenting gut. Pathologies like temporal arteritis, polymargia rheumatica, fibromyalgia, chronic urticaria, intrinsic asthma, inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis, you know, etc. So if, if, if people listening to this podcast, and I'm quite sure, Tony, you do the paleoketogenic diet because you wouldn't dare admit otherwise. If people listening to this um, podcast do nothing other than move to paleo, i.e. no grains, no dairy, because they are not natural foods, paleo, ketogenic i.e. very low-carbohydrate diet, um, they will be doing themselves a huge favor hmm. because we now know that doing that diet, A, is the starting point to treat absolutely everything and it's also the starting point to prevent absolutely everything. So guess what? Am I going to wait till I get my dementia or my cancer or my heart disease before I start doing the PK diet? No, I'm going to do it now. And again, people ask me, why the PK diet, you know? And the answer is because that's what primitive man's been eating for the past few hundreds of thousands of years. That is the natural diet. And, um, uh, and our bodies and our guts and our brains have evolved you know, consuming those foods. So that's what we should be eating. I know I've talked far too long. Your, your problem, Tony, is going to be shutting me up. And I'm quite sure there are a million and one questions that might pop out. So if you've got anything, you know, Please say so now before before you lose me in the, in, in, in the distance. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, as you say that, that brings so many different questions in some, into my mind. And the obvious one being, so so someone does change to a paleo ketogenic diet. How long typically, I mean, this is a bit like asking how long is a piece of string, but how long would it take those symptoms to start to disappear and for the person to recover? Remarkably quickly. You know, a few weeks you would see a difference. Okay. Now, the problem is is that sugars and junk foods are addictive. And what happens when we give up an addiction? We get withdrawal symptoms. Mm. So, you know, the caffeine addict giving up caffeine will initially feel you know, weak and maybe headachy and a bit you know, spaced out, uh, but that will last a few days or a week or so, and then they will feel much better. It's the same for any addiction. And the key to this diet is to think of sugars and refined carbohydrates as an addiction. And if you're eating foods in an addictive way, then you have metabolic syndrome. You, you, you are fueling your bodies with sugars and carbohydrates. And that is the forerunner to diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, cholesterol problems, heart disease, cancer, dementia, the whole shooting match. So once you have recognized that sugars are addictive, and it's very easy to do, mm. now, um, um, if I take a dietary history from somebody, I recognize within the first um, a few seconds what the problem is. And if they're, oh, yes, for breakfast, so, well, I have a glass of fruit juice, a bowl of muesli, a toast, marmalade. Um, all those things are sugars and carbohydrates. Mm. I immediately know. And what that means when they have that sort of breakfast is that mid-morning mid they're hungry because that breakfast sends their blood sugar flying up, which, of course, is very dangerous to the body, high blood sugar. Sugar is sticky stuff. It's sticky mm. in the hands. If I pick up sugar and put it in my hands, it's sticky. It's mm. sticky in the bloodstream too. It sticks to things. Mm. 
And in sticking to things, it damages and denatures them. So high blood sugar sticks to arteries and damages them. It sticks to brain proteins and damages them. In fact, dementia is now being called type 3 diabetes. Mm. It's, it's a sugar problem in the brain. You know, it sticks to connective tissue and damages that too. We now know osteoporosis is part of sugar addiction. Mm. So it manifests in lots of ways. So the body cannot allow the blood sugar to run too high. So as soon as it comes up after that um, high-carb meal, insulin is poured out. How does insulin bring the blood sugar down? By shunting into fat. And therefore, people running on carbs tend to get fat very easily. Then the whole metabolic drive is to laying down fat. So then the blood sugar starts to come down. Now, if you're eating sugar on the all the time, the brain runs on sugar. Mm. As the blood sugar drops, the brain starts to panic. Oh, we're running out of fuel. It sends out the panic hormone. What's the panic hormone? Adrenaline. What's adrenaline do? Okay, it stimulates, you know, fat burning. Initially, it brings blood sugars back up again. But um, adrenaline gives us high blood pressure. It makes us feel stressed, worried, anxious. If you get an adrenaline spike in the middle of the night, it stops you sleeping. And we know that loss of sleep is a major drive of all pathologies. You know, if you, if you don't get good quality sleep and the right hours, we know that's a risk factor for cancer, heart disease, and dementia. It's symptomatic of that adrenaline spike. So, and, and that adrenaline spike is a bit addictive, you know, mm. you, you, because suddenly you've got a bit of energy. Okay, it's temporary, it's ephemeral, we know it's not going to last, but, you know, it runs out at 11 o'clock and then our sugar addict goes and has a sweet drink, cup of coffee, biscuits, bag of crisps, piece of fruit, whatever, up comes the blood sugar again and you're on that roller coaster. And to get off that roller coaster does take a few days of very low carbohydrate diet until the body is running on ketones, because mm. ketones are the preferred fuel of mitochondria. That's how they function best on. And um, we, know, we know that from years of, of just experience. Uh, I was fascinated to read that the samurai warriors, before a, uh, a battle, they will fast for 24 hours, because they know they function much better and at a high level when they're running on ketones. They have far more stamina. The world record for the furthest distance run in 24 hours is held by keto-adapted athlete Mike Morton. And during those 24 hours, he ran 172 miles. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it? Um, uh, some, of, some listeners may have heard of um, Dr. Ian Lane, GP down in, um, in the South, who's a type 1 diabetic. Now, he controls his diabetes with a ketogenic diet. Hmm. All type 1 diabetics will need a little bit of insulin, but very, very little, and it's constant. Anyway, um, not last summer, but the summer before, he did a five-day fast together with Matthew Pinsent and some other athletes. And during those five days, he ran 20 miles every day. So he ran from Winchester to Bristol. And during that time, his blood sugars were absolutely level. He didn't run out of any energy. Obviously, he lost some weight because he was burning fat. But um, he was absolutely fine. And so were the other four keto-adapted athletes at the end of that. Mm -hmm. It illustrates the point that we can <clears> achieve great things on ketones. In fact, that's how we function best running on ketones. Our brain works better. Our bodies work better. And by doing that low-sugar carbohydrate diet, we massively reduce the toxic load. We massively reduce the load from sugar and from all products of fermentation that we, we talked about earlier. Hmm. And just by reducing that toxic load, your liver has less work to do and your mitochondria work much better. 
Hmm. Again, I'm, I know I'm jumping ahead and forgive me for jumping all over the place, but mitochondria, that's my special area of interest. Right. And I started to get interested in mitochondria in the 1990s. Now, we, we learn about that medical school, as I'm sure you did, uh, as part of the you know, second MB, you've got to struggle through your biochemistry. And as part of that, you learn about mitochondria. And it's the sort of subject that you mug up the night before on chocolate biscuits and coffee. Um, you regurgitate on the examination page the next day and hope you've done enough to pass. And the reason you do that is because in the 1970s, when I learned all this stuff, I didn't know that it had any um, clinical application. In fact, we weren't taught that it had any clinical application whatsoever. Right. We, but by contrast now, mitochondria are now implicated in any pathology you care to mention. Hmm. You know, we know they go slow in heart failure. Um, we know they go slow in dementia. We know they're implicating cancer. We know they're a central part of diabetes. So, you know, mitochondria has suddenly become, you know, the most important you know, pathological unit talked about in the modern world. But in the 1990s, when I first started rethinking them, um, there was none of this stuff. Anyway, I was very lucky to work with the most brilliant biochemist in the world, Dr. John McLaren Howard, who was at Biolab Laboratories. And I put it to him that we needed a mitochondrial function test. That was the easy bit. The difficult bit was developing the test. Um, and, and, you know, John really should be given the Nobel Prize for biochemistry for his brilliance. He developed a mitochondrial function test. And I started to apply this test to my patients who are not responding to the usual dietary interventions, micronutrient supplements, and all that stuff. And to cut a very, 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 very long story short, and three papers later, we demonstrated that those patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME, who had the most fatigue, had the worst mitochondrial function, and vice versa. Right. It's almost a straight line graph um, when we looked at mitochondrial function against uh, disability. And this was done blinded. So I saw the patients and worked out their energy score in conjunction with them. The blood test went to John McLaren Howard. And of course, the blood sub beg your pardon, went to John McLaren Howard. And of course, he didn't know how fatigued those patients were. He just did the test. Mm -hmm. And then the results went to a third party uh, to be number crunched. And um, finally, the paper was published. Right. So it was a very powerful paper. And our third paper then looked at what happens when we put the correct, um, those mitochondrial functions. And mitochondria, say the engines of your car, they can go slow for a number of reasons. Mm. They can go slow because you've got the wrong fuel in the tank. Well, we've addressed mm. that because guess what? We put the right fuel in the tank, which, is, uh, which are ketones. The mitochondria can go slow because they are deficient in some essential nutrient. Now, in parallel with the mitochondrial function test, we also did nutritional studies looking at levels of magnesium, vitamin B3, coenzyme Q10, blah, 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 blah. and we found that common things were common. And there were five common deficiencies that came up time and time and time again. Magnesium, vitamin B3, um, um, estyl L-carnitine, um, CoQ10, um, and D-ribose are the five nutrients that we use to replace the deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And then we found mitochondria could go slow because they were blocked by something. And guess what? You know, a very common thing was products of the fermenting gut. And we've already addressed that with our PK diet. Mm. But again, this is nice to fit in with those people I'd seen who'd been poisoned <clears throat> because the Gulf War veterans were poisoned by organophosphates. Sheep dip farmers are poisoned by organophosphates. People uh, experiencing spray drift are poisoned by organophosphates. 
The nasty bit of biochemistry that describes mitochondrial function is called oxidative phosphorylation. So no wonder they were, that was inhibited by organophosphates. You know, it's not rocket science, is it? Hmm. So by identifying the toxins, and again, you get clues from the history, heavy metals, pesticides or whatever, we found we could improve mitochondrial function reliably well. So that's the second bit. And at that point, I felt qualified to write a book on it, which I called Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. It's mitochondria, not hypochondria. And I have to say that that title went down very well with my fatigue patients. (laughs) (laughs) So then we have to look at the control mechanisms. Because, you know, you could have, you know, a Formula One car with rocket fuel in it. But if the accelerator pedal and the gearbox didn't work, you wouldn't go anywhere. So the next thing we have to look at um, are the control mechanisms. Now, the underactive thyroid is probably one of the worst treated condition in Western medicine. Not my words, but the words of um, Dr. Kenneth Blanchard, American endocrinologist who's written several books on the subject. He estimates that maybe up to 40% of Westerners are are deficient in thyroid hormones. We are seeing epidemics of hypothyroidism here. Even the conventional endocrinologists in this country will tell you, well, about 1% of the population receive um, thyroid hormones, but they know about 10% actually need treatment and, and that diagnosis has been missed. So uh, in my books, I took a lot about the characteristic symptoms of the underactive thyroid and how you can treat it yourself with natural interventions. The point here is you have to bypass doctors because doctors are a break. They get in the way of, of, of treating the underactive thyroid well because they will only diagnose that on the basis of blood tests. And then often there's only one part of the blood test they look at, which is the TSH. If the TSH is normal, nothing wrong with you. Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. So we then look at, say, the thyroid accelerator pedal. And then, um, then we then concentrate on the adrenal gearbox that allows us to gear up um, in response to stress. Um, and don't laugh now, my lovely publisher, Georgina, who, bless her, um, uh, prints everything that I write, um, has asked me to do a thyroid adrenal book, and that is my next project. So I can send you the early chapters if you think that would help. But that's the overview of the patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. Hmm. And then um, we have to look at the ME patients. And the ME patients, they've all got chronic fatigue syndrome. They've all got poor energy delivery mechanisms, but they've also got inflammation. And inflammation is switched. Inflammation occurs when the immune system is busy. Now, the immune system is obviously an essential part of our health. And what we want is an intelligent immune system that switches on in response to an acute infection, deals with that you know, busily and actively and, uh, and gets rid of that um, virus or bacteria or fungus, whatever it is, and then goes back to a dormant state, state again. Yeah. But so many of the MEs, the immune system has been switched on and hasn't been switched off. It continues in an inflamed state in response to a chronic infection that it has not dealt with you know, efficiently. Mm. The immune system can be switched on. And the, the analogy I like to use is the immune system is our standing army. You know, imagine the body is a country and the immune system is our standing army. Now, of course, we want to swing it into action when Napoleon invades. You know, we want to sweep him off the beaches before he, you know, gets to the, um, uh, the, you know, um, he gets to the um, Tower of London and grabs the crown jewels. So um, get rid of the infection. But what we don't want is our standing army to start 
attacking harmless tourists, you know, harmless tourists that might be doing some good, harmless tourists like food, you know, um, like pollen, you know, um, uh, you know, those things don't cause the body any harm whatsoever um, uh, from an allergy point of view. And, and that is called allergy. So people reacting allergically to foods, that's, that's stupidity. That's an immune error. That's a big mistake. Mm. And worse than that, you can get a case of what I call civil war when the Astani army attacks itself. Mm. And that's called autoimmunity. And that's, you know, the, the immune system suddenly decides that the thyroid is an enemy and attacks it and destroys it. Suddenly decides that lining the gut is an enemy and attacks it and destroys it. And autoimmunity is very bad news. And the big thing that switches on autoimmunity better than anything else is vaccination. And this is why it's so worrying at the moment that we're seeing, you know, epidemics of vaccination and we will see epidemics of autoimmunity that will follow that. You know, we're in a very dangerous situation at present. Um, already autoimmunity afflicts about one in 20 of the population. That is far too high. You know, auto, rates of autoimmunity are increasing exponentially. Mm. So those are the three categories of inflammation that I'm looking for in somebody who's got ME. Again, I've talked far too long. Uh, you're very um, n- nicely sitting there smiling at me as if I'm doing the right thing. But again, is it making sense? I want this to be a conversation, not me just rabbiting on because I know I can. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe that creating healthy habits should be easy. If you know a friend or a loved one who might be interested in learning simple habits to improve their health, then please share this podcast with them. We also invite you to subscribe and to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to the show. Well, so one of the things I I want to go back to is you, you talked about the addictive nature of the of the sugars and, and so on and and so in theory it's easy if people are, are able to switch to a ketogenic diet um a, a paleo ketogenic diet then the symptoms will go but but because of the addictive nature many people aren't able to sustain that so when people do struggle to try to switch what how what are the best ways to help them well, you know, the answer is, it's, first of all, don't switch it for another addiction. Mm. Uh, the best example of this, you know, stopping smoking, you know, very often people stop smoking and they, sw- they swap nicotine addiction for sugar addiction and they get fat. And, mm. and we've all seen that in people who've given up smoking. I mean, the awful thing with addiction is there is no easy solution. Um, and the shameful thing is, is addiction is how we deal with stress. So when we are stressed by something, we have unpleasant symptoms and we use addiction to mask those symptoms. Mm. Um, and it's, again, it's short-term gain, long-term pain. And the awful thing is there is no easy, um, quick solution for that. It's just willpower. Mm. Uh, and, but what I can say is the longer that you can stick with it, you know, the better. Now, addiction, all addictions, they are good servants but bad masters. Mm. So I know I'm a potential alcohol addict. I love the stuff, um, but I don't drink at all at home. But if I have a party, if some friends come around, you know, I have a couple of glasses of wine. And guess what? You know, I'm much gigglier. I'm much funnier. My jokes are much better. You know, it, we have a fun time. But I know I have to get on the wagon the day after. And it's the same with sugars. If you can consume sugars in a non-addictive way, you know, use them occasionally maybe as a, as a, as a flavor enhancer, use them occasionally for a jolly, but get off them routinely, then, um, you know, you'll be doing yourself a big favor. And 
you know, I agree with you. There isn't, there is no easy solution. It is willpower. Uh, I mean, people think if they pour money at it and take lots of supplements, they can get around it, but it just ain't like that. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I wish I had uh, an easy, yep, you can do this and you'll feel much better, but it doesn't work. Even artificial sweeteners um, are, are a problem because, you know, the, the, the body is intelligent. And if it tastes something sweet in the mouth, it will anticipate a sugar rush. It will pour out insulin in anticipation of that. And you will get all the metabolic problems of, 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 of high insulin and high adrenaline following sweetness because, as I say, the, the body is intelligent. So even they um, are not a good substitute. And that's why sweetness has signally failed mm. in people trying to do calorie-restricted diets. You know, they don't work because, um, in fact, they just keep the addictive nature going. Mm. You, you've mentioned about... Um one a couple of the books that you've written how many books have you written oh gosh seven or eight now i think and so when when was the last one um the most oh the most recent one which actually is due to come out any day now is called green mother okay and green mother is all about the application of ecological medicine to preconception care um pregnancy um um, child um the birth process child rearing weaning sleep and so on and so forth and I don't laugh now, but I first wrote this book in 1982 when my daughter was born uh, and then um, uh, it never got anywhere and I got busy and, and rather forgot about it. And it just so happened that a very uh, a, a neighbour moved in, lived the hill over, over, hill over there, became a very good friend and a soulmate, read my book on diabetes, immediately got um, the hang of that and and put herself in a paleo-ketogenic diet. Now, Michelle and Pete have been trying for children for some time and failed. But within a few months of doing a PK diet and taking my supplements, Michelle conceived. Hmm. So she continued the diet through her first pregnancy. Baby Bob's was born. And she continued the diet, PK diet, through, pregnant, through um, breastfeeding and has continued to, to wean, um, feed Bob's. And more recently, ETA number two has come along, a paleo-ketogenic diet. Now, What's so fascinating about that is those children, they don't have any carbohydrates, so their blood sugar will be absolutely level. They're happily running on ketones. That means they never get hungry. That means they sleep. And both girls from about the age of you know, uh, 12 weeks and earlier go to bed at 7 o'clock in the evening and sleep through solidly till 8 o'clock the next morning. In fact, Michelle has to wake them up at 8 o'clock, otherwise they would continue to sleep. Hmm. And in addition to that, they also sleep another three hours in the day. So Michelle has not had any night time. She's, she's had her normal sleep routine. She can have an evening to herself because they're asleep by seven o'clock. She says, I often get up early at eight o'clock and go riding up at five o'clock in the morning and go for a ride because I know they're not going to wake up. And guess what? They, they never have. I think Bob S has woken up twice, once when she had a tummy bug and once when she had a bat fly into the room and, and the bat woke up. But Bob's has never woken up. Uh, and then she's a very talented artist, so she can continue to work um, in, a, in the afternoon because um, the children are asleep then. And those children, they're just so laid back. They're just so easy in all respects. I mean, when I went to go and stay, I mean, unfortunately, they've moved back to Dorset now. But, um, you know, when I go and stay with them, you know, I sit at the table and they, they're there too. And they're listening to the conversation and they're not screaming and crying. And Michelle's quite tough with them. You know, she wags her finger at them if they start to misbehave them and they just accept that. And they're just lovely, calm, healthy children, not being vaccinated, 
yes, they get you know coughs and colds, but they get rid of them very rapidly with simple nutritional um, techniques. And they're not up and down, they're not shaky and tremulous, so they don't get hungry, they don't need snacks. They really are a different breed. So green mother is how we should be applying all this stuff. And of course, there's much in the book about the paleoketogenic diet to our children, because that's how primitive man raised his children, or rather primitive woman raised her children. Yeah, They ate exactly the same foods as the adults. And so I, I gather in that approach means, because so many children now have asthma and various allergies and, and many other conditions, so that would address those sort of issues. Of course. Prevention is far better than cure. And, uh, you know, we can link the rising increase rates of asthma directly to vaccination because we know vaccines switch on allergy and switch on autoimmunity. But if you've got a healthy immune system, vaccines are rendered irrelevant. We just don't need them. In fact, I address that whole issue of vaccination in Green Mother and devote a whole chapter to that. Having acute febrile illness in childhood is very desirable. It trains the immune system. You know, children have been having acute febrile illnesses you know, uh, since you know, the start of, of, of the development of Homo sapiens. And they're an essential part of training the immune system. And if you've got good nutrition with vitamin D and vitamin C and all that, you'll have no problem whatsoever from your mumps or your measles or your chicken pox. You know, it doesn't matter. We should get all those infections. And the important thing is getting those infections in childhood protects you from cancer and heart disease later on in life. Mm. Very clear associations between malignant brain tumors, for example. So it's part of normal growing up. It's part of the normal education of the immune system. And we should be educating our immune system with these infections. And we should be giving the immune systems the energy that it needs to fight. And we do that with the diet and good sleep and the tools that it needs to fight. And we do that with good nutrition, a good, you know, whole, wholesome diet with lots of vitamin C and lots of vitamin D and B vitamins and selenium and zinc and all else. So mm-hmm. I explain all that in, in Green Mother. And so is that book out now? It's, I, think it, I think it is out now. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure when the... Um, I, it's on, certainly on my website because um, so we started sending it out for Christmas because we knew people would want, want it for Christmas. But it's officially launched in the next day or two. But if you go to my website, you will certainly be able to get the book from there. And for our overseas listeners, would, is it available on, say, Amazon and so on? Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if Amazon have got it yet, but we send books overseas. I mean, unfortunately, the postage is a bit more. But uh, I do have a lovely publisher in America called Chelsea Green, and they will um, stock that book for certain, and that will go out to um, the American and Canadian de- department. So it should be available, I hope, widely. And, and, and speaking of books, is there a, a book in your life that you can think of that's really moved you for, for any particular reason? I think probably Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which I read in the early 1970s, you know, when I was doing O-levels or A-levels. And that, to me, was a real eye-opener. I remember thinking, gosh, at that time, what we are doing to this planet is just not sustainable. In mm. fact, the first book I wrote, I called Sustainable Medicine, or one of the early books. I've now replaced that with Ecological Medicine. But um, um, it made me realize that, that, that everything that we're doing in this world, every activity 
is just not sustainable. It's just not compatible with a healthy world. And of course, this sort of medicine I'm practicing now, ecological medicine, functional medicine, sustainable medicine, naturopathic medicine, it doesn't matter what we call it. The point is, it is all done in accordance with the rules of nature. And that's very empowering um, because, you know, by practicing this medicine, everybody has, as I call it, the rules of the game and the tools of the trade to, to heal themselves. And it all started with Rachel Carson, bless her. If people want to find about found more about you, Sarah, where where's the best places to look? Website, social media, so on. Uh, well, if you just go to uh, Dr. Maya Hill, uh, my website, um, I, I mean, most of my information is there, freely available on my website. Some people prefer books, and all my books are there, and there's a whole range of them. There's the infection game. Uh, there's the energy equation, which, which looks specifically about you know, um, those issues. And what has proved very popular is um, I run all workshops, and uh, anybody can join them. You can buy a ticket, um, and then you get me talking all day from 9.30 in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon with a break for lunch. And I limit it to 20 people. And at any point, anybody can ask any question by just waving their hand. And I go through all these regimes um, that uh, people need to do to empower themselves, to allow them to heal themselves, because there aren't enough functional doctors like you and me around to do this individually. And actually, they do work remarkably well. Um, and if, peop- if, if people don't get a response to that early, then there are follow-up workshops that I do where I limit that to six people and we more intensively concentrate on individual people's symptoms. And I do it in groups like that because we can cover so much more ground. And people learn by repetition. Um, of course, it's all recorded, so you, know, you can then listen to that subsequently. But people learn by repetition. And when they see that they're not the only person in the world, there are other people like them who have similar problems and similar questions and, and, and the same answers, you know, that's hugely empowering. So um, that would be a, a useful start for somebody who really wanted to, to move things on inexpensively. Sarah, just before we finish, and it's been, it's been a delight, but just be, you know, I have to be respectful of your time. Is there, is there a quotation you particularly like? Um, I am a great fan of Winston Churchill. I've just been reading his autobiography again. And in that, Churchill says, my education was only interrupted by my schooling. (laughs) And I think that's wonderful because schooling at the moment at schools and, dare I say, medical education is not an education. It's a brainwashing. And I reckon I use in my everyday practice maybe 5% or less of that that I learned at medical school. 95% of what I practice, I have learned since from books, from people like you, from my patients, from asking the right questions. So what I would say to people is, you know, there's so much information available, you know, and, it's, and you can educate yourself, and that's a, an essential part of recovery and getting well. So don't rely on traditional, you know, schoolings, which ask, which are brainwashings. You know, um, use the resources available to educate yourself, to learn it for yourself, and then work it out. And that's what Winston Churchill did. Sarah, it's been um, fascinating. So I really appreciate your time. So thank you very much. My pleasure. It's easy when you have a a good interviewer like you who asks all the right questions. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, episode 50. And my guest is Silk Maria Haas. She is an energetic coach and a healer who has more than 25 years of experience helping people with physical 
emotional, mental and spiritual problems. And being a natural seeker of truth, she went to India at the age of 18 and discovered yoga as a way of life. And from that, she's been helping many students with medical problems. She trained as an osteopath and a naturopath. And so we hear a lot more about that journey and what's happened since then and how she helps people now. So that's next week, episode 50 with Silk Maria Haas. If you enjoyed this week's episode with uh, Sarah Myhill, please do share the episode with anyone who you feel will get some real values, get some real benefit from it. And hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.